Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. My friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Pep. It is so good to be here with you today as we mm. are stepping into the uh, episode two of season five. And those of you who haven't caught episode one yet, uh, we are going through the book, The Soul of Shame uh, by Dr. Kurt Thompson. We are going to be delving into chapter one today. If you listened last week, that means you went and got the book or got the book out that was already on your bookshelf and you've read the first chapter. So you are geared up and ready to go. Mm. So let's Mm. take it away, Kurt. What is our problem with shame? Well, you know, that, that problem that we have, uh, is, you know, multidimensional, but, um, one thing that we like to talk about just to get started here is this notion that uh, when we're talking about shame, we're really talking about certain kinds of mechanics. They're like, it's the what that happens to us. It's the what that happens between us, both neurologically, neurobiologically, interpersonally, what happens to us. There are the mechanics but those are the mechanics of our stories. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna have an entire episode that's gonna be committed to this notion of storytelling and what that means and how that's related to shame and how it is that shame embeds our stories and we live out our shame in the context of those stories. So our problem with shame has to do with the mechanics of our stories, how shame operates, but also in the context of how we are telling story that we're telling. One way for us to think about this, and I don't write this uh, explicitly in the book, but have recently come to to think of it in this term, is that we always want to to invite our listeners to be aware that what we are really trying to do is to draw our attention to how we are always moving from imagination to incarnation, from imagination to incarnation. This whole notion that we are made in God's image, we are image bearers, we are called to bear God's image, and we are called to restore God's image in the world. Those are the two clear callings that we have as human beings. That we are doing that first by, you know, through the function of our, literally through our imagination. As we like to say, there's no intentional human behavior whether it's walking across the floor or painting a painting or uh, looking at Saturn through a telescope, there's none of that that we do without first imagining it. Mm. I imagine it in some way. I'm anticipating it. I have an image in my mind. But that image then moves to incarnation. Now, when we use the word incarnation, we're really talking about the incarnation, the coming and appearance of Jesus in the world. This notion, though, that when we are becoming the body of Christ, we are also incarnating, we are embodying the image of God, and this becomes shame's playground. Shame wants to infect and invade our imaginations and then allow that to express itself in our embodied action. This whole notion that God first has what I like to call the song of creation, this this comes from the magician's nephew, right, in the series from the Narnia series where Aslan sings Narnia into being. 
this notion that God sings creation into being in Genesis chapter 1, and God's word, let there be light, is a this song, and there is then light. Light becomes a physical thing. It becomes this physical matter, and he's giving it not just He's not just giving it existence, he's also giving it purpose and meaning. And so we move from word to world, from word to world. And this is important to recognize that when it comes to shame, how many of us have words banging around in our head? I'm not enough. I'm an idiot. Like I, I, yeah, I'm an idiot, right? Yeah. All these things, these words that take up residence in our in our mind and they over and over and over and over again and we don't say them out loud to ever until of course I'm overwhelmed by my own shame and now I start to share it with other people and I say you idiot in my mind or out loud in some way shape or form and so this is why I would say you know we we're, we've heard the, the the common phrase of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas and what I want to assure our listeners to know is that shame is not that kind of a function. I want to assure you that what happens in Vegas does not stay in Vegas. What happens in your mind, the shame that happens in the imagination, eventually it doesn't stay there. It eventually will become incarnate. It becomes this incarnated thing. The question is in what way is that taking place? And so we move from the intrapersonal, what's taking place within me, to the interpersonal, what's taking place between you and me, mm-hmm. And then how we start to share that in our community. We share it in our families. We share it generationally. And then we become violent communities of people. And we become violent toward anyone else who is other than us. This becomes in our ethnic, our ethnic divides, our, our political divides, all the ways in which we then use shame in such a way that, as I mentioned in our first episode, this notion that the news about shame is far worse than we know. The other thing that I think is important for us to recognize and acknowledge right out of the gate is that shame in and of itself, not good or bad, it is the way evil intentionally uses it. There is an intentionality with which evil wants to manipulate and use shame. We learn, and we'll talk more about this in detail as in, in future episodes, we learn that it's developmentally primal. Right? It starts early and often in our developmental years. And in the same way, in the biblical narrative, it's out of the gate very quickly. We only get two chapters in before all the wheels start to come off. It right. doesn't happen somewhere in the middle of the Bible. It happens early on in the same way that it happens early on neurally and interpersonally for us as human beings. And so with that in mind, it's you know, probably worth beginning to talk in a little more detail about like, well, what is this thing that we're actually talking about? And people will sometimes say, well, Kurt, what's the definition of shame? And I usually will say it's, it, there's, it's less of having a definition, like here's the definition of shame. Here's what, and it's more a description, more an awareness of us being attuned and being observant to what it is that actually happens. And in, over the course of our season this season, we're going to be weaving back and forth between mechanics and the stories in which those mechanics are embedded. And so we might say at first glance that, you know, I mean, we all, in some respects, like, like, you know, nobody needs to listen to this podcast to know what shame, like we all kind of know 
what that is. We have this sense of this. And there is, we, we say that it begins, it's, it's an undercurrent of perceptions and sensations. First, we sense things, literally, with our bodies, and we perceive what that is, and we eventually attach words and meaning and behavior to those things that we first sense and perceive. Some of those words might be, I'm bad, or I'm not enough. There's something wrong with me, or like, I'm just an idiot. Right, right. Which that's, I find myself calling myself that, unfortunately. Yeah. We were talking earlier, literally to the point that it's, there's times where, uh, you know, I'll say it out loud, such an idiot. And what that does to you, what that, you know, I think about walking around with that. Yeah. You know, why am I walking around with that? And, and, you know, I, and I, yeah. And then I, I, I need people like you and Amy and, you know, my wife to say, that's not true. That's not what you are. That's, you know, and it takes, then you look away from it and there it is again. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we, we would say, you know, that, you know, this, this thing, this thing that begins, it, it, it it does begin in the body, right? This, it is a sensation that we Mm -hmm. have, we we feel it. It's, it's not a thing that I first, oh, I think about it as a concept and then I feel it. Right. No, right. The, the words that say, I, you know, the, I, I'm such an idiot, like they are preceded by something that we, that's happening to us. And they do represent some kind of meaning that we then are giving to it. And, that some form of this, like I'm an idiot or I'm inadequate. I don't have what it takes. Right. And it, and, and sometimes it can even be attached to other emotion, right? Because this whole notion that I am not enough, I am inadequate to life, to what to life's demands, but not inadequate even in a neutral way, right? I could say, well, I, I'm inadequate to fly a 737. Like I, I can't, but I, but, but I don't have the expectation that I should be able to fly. Right. 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 But, you know, I'm inadequate to change a toilet seat. I like, it's a toilet seat. It's not a 737. I'm inadequate to lead a nonprofit. I'm inadequate to be a husband. I'm inadequate in this moment to be the right kind of father. I'm inadequate to be the right kind of friend. I'm like, all the things, all the ways in which we have this kind of a sense. And so the, even to the point where it gets attached to other emotions, this, like, like for instance, our grief. Like when I, I you know, we're, we're soon, uh, we, my, I was saying earlier, like Phyllis and I have two very close friends who are soon going to be leaving the area. The people who are some of our closest friends in the world uh, are leaving Virginia and they're moving to Africa. Byron and Kristen are leaving for Africa where they're both going to take on new positions at a school and in a community there in Uganda. And the felt sense of grief, of sadness is undeniable. But underneath that, behind that is the sense of like, what am I going to do? I don't have what it takes. I'm not enough to tolerate their departure. Sadness isn't the only thing that's in play. And so shame often also will want to wrap itself around all kinds of other noxious, unpleasant emotional states so that evil can get its foot into the door every way and any way that it can. And it will tend to want to like, you know, as we like to say, it doubles back and doubles down. 
you know, Allison, we've, I've told this story before, but we've had other people have this sense that Allison growing up, she was the, you know, the, the young girl who brought her 92% to her mom who's asking, like, where's the other 8%? Now, mm-hmm. Allison was so proud of this test. Like, she'd never gotten, you know, this is the best score that she'd ever gotten, a 92%. Where's the other 8% on your, on your score? And so Allison then has to double down on working harder. And of course, the whole time she's doubling down, she's worried about where, like, where's the other 8%? And Allison will be 40 years old and a mother of three and so forth and so on. And she's, she's still worrying about where the other 8% is. Yeah. Even when everybody around her says, like, I can't believe how much you do. I can't, like, look at the mother you are. Look at the wife you are. Look at the, you know, look at the social worker that you are. Look like all the things. And Allison's thinking, where the heck's the other 8%? Or this, you know, this story of, uh, you know, Matt's story, like that he's this, yeah. uh, you, 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 you want to tell about that? Well, no, I you just, I just, I related to, to Matt's story. You know, he's this successful guy that owns a business and uh, ex- comes to you because he's experiencing anxiety and the anxiety is built around the business that, you know, he's afraid that, that you know, the economy is going to turn or something. He has, he has these employees that are depending on him. And he thinks he's coming to you for anxiety to to ha- to help handle the anxiety, and there's just this underlying feeling that he has that I'm not enough, that he's an mm-hmm. imposter, that he he's not going to be able to be the 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 leader that he needs to be, even though he's lived through downturns, he's done, you know, he's proved himself time and time again, and yet he still feels like I'm not enough, I'm not enough, and. Mm-hmm. And is having enough anxiety about it that his wife, you know, tells him, you got you to gotta start dealing with this somehow. So right. he comes to you, and I'll let you take the story from there. But it, it, I, I will say that I, I identified with this story a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of wishing well, it wasn't in the chapter. Right. Yeah, well, and I, and I, I do too. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm looking around at, you know, we... Our, we have this private practice, and it has, uh, you know, it, I, I think it's as I think we, I think it's been helpful over the years for the in, in our in our community, and I'm I'm really pleased and, and honored and humbled by what we've been able to do, and you know, there's always the part of me that's worrying about, you know, well, have I done enough? Have we done the right? Have we done right? Have we done well enough by enough people? And you know, you can. I had a, I had a mentor when I was early out of residency who who said it's important to know Kurt no psychiatrist is good enough to treat every patient. And this is a guy who was 15 years ahead of me and seasoned and mm-hmm. really good at I mean just really like really effective as a psychiatrist. And to have this mentor of mine say this like it was it was like somebody lifting a like an anvil off of my chest. No psychiatrist is good enough to treat everybody. And I have made a practice of telling that to all the clinicians who ever worked for me. Like, you're actually not good enough. And that, I want you to know that as, a, uh, as, as an item of freedom, as an item of liberation. That you No, know, there are some people for whom it's, it, it'll be somebody else to take care of. Them. And so here I tell patients, and it doesn't matter. You know, two weeks ago, I'm sitting with a patient who's like, upset with me about something that I had done. And I'm like, like, how's this possible? I've been doing this for 30, for 30 years. I, I shouldn't be having this experience. I should somehow have seen this coming. I should, I should have done this. I shouldn't have done that. Like, like I can't take my own advice. So, you know, you know, I, 
Matt is a Matt is a story for me to contend with. Yeah, as well. Matt's Matt's story, and so this sense that like like with both Allison and Matt, like it, it, this this notion that shame becomes part of their story and it doubles back. Right, it comes back around. I feel bad, and then I feel bad for feeling bad. Yeah. And in that sense, it doubles down. It just strengthens its mm-hmm. grip on us interpersonally and neurobiologically. One of the first things that we see, one of the first features of shame that we see is this sense of condemnation, this sense of judgment, the spirit of judgment with which. So like, you know, when you say like, I'm just such an idiot. Right. Like I, th- I think to myself, okay, right now when, when, you, when you say this to me, I'm like, Pepper, I don't know, I don't know where that part of you is, but I'm going to come find it. And I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to, like, I want to, I'm, I'm, I want to say like, well, I I was, you know, I I was raised as a Quaker, so I'm just going to have words with it. Right. But if I were a Presbyterian, I'd come with a knife. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, 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 and at the same time, there is the part of you want to say, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait, what's the part of the story that we'll get to in other episodes? What's the part of the story whereby which this, this part of the, what's the purpose that it's serving? Right. Mm -hmm. But still, like, I feel protective of you because like, like you're 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 one of my closest friends, and I and I this this sense of idiot. Like I don't no. Like I, we're, no, 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 no. This judgment that we have, you know, um, Will was, you know, another another businessman who uh, wanted to. He had people who wanted to come to work for him, and he couldn't understand why he was having such a high turnover rate. And you know, his uh, way of trying to help help his employees is to offer constructive criticism. Uh, but what uh, Will isn't recognizing is that what he is intending to do is being delivered in his embodied way, in his words, in his tone, and so forth and so on. It's being delivered in such a way that he's basically committing micro acts of violence. Now, he doesn't know this. He's like, I, I'm, I'm trying to help them. This is like Allison's mother. I'm trying to help her with her other, you know, helping to find the other 8%. And this sense of, you know, we have experiences of our, of our parents or our employees or our pastors or whoever acting out of their own shame, acting out of their own distress, wanting to do well-intended things. But in the process our shame attendant, who we'll introduce ourselves to in just a little bit in a later episode, our shame attendant gra- grabs the microphone and in some way, shape, or form is saying to Allison, saying to Matt, saying to Will, as Will then delivers the message to his employees, you're an idiot. And so we like to say that it is shamed people who shame people. Hmm. We offer our condemnation, this whole notion of Judge not lest ye be judged. We're judging all the time. And I, the, my, my uh, likeliness, the likelihood of my uh, judging somebody else is coming out of my largesse. It's coming out of the um, extra part of me that has more than enough shame. And so I just want to share some with you. If you've been listening to the Being Known podcast, you know that trauma and its healing are something to which we pay a great deal of attention. 
So when the women at Hun's Honey reached out to partner with us, it was really just a no-brainer. Hun's Honey is a social enterprise dedicated to creating dignity and purpose for and with women who have survived significant trauma, be that of addiction, trafficking, generational poverty, or abuse. Before being employed at Hun's Honey, these women commit to a holistic healing process through a life development program, free counseling, workshops, and building community. You know, Kurt, recently Amy and I had a great opportunity to tour Hun's Honey. And I really have to tell you that we were both just blown away by the work that they're doing there. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. heart that Mandy and Sarah and Jordan have for their women that they serve and the work that they do. Mm-hmm. We were so impressed with these women who are bravely working to overcome the trauma that they've suffered. And here's how you can help. So Hun's Honey, they sell home, body, and honey goods such as sugar scrubs, soap bars, beeswax candles, and raw honey. All of their products are filled with high-quality natural ingredients using locally sourced honey. You know, in fact, they raise their own bees, and they harvest their own honey themselves. And we heard stories about the healing process of working with bees. One of the women uh, had a story that she was saying that but as you approach the bees, before you approach the bees— They could feel any anxiety that you may be having. So you really have Mm. to sort of go through Mm. this meditative, mindful process of of calming yourself before you approach the hive or you're going to get stung, which I thought was just fascinating. Wow. Wow. Living, breathing experience of life-changing work. And 100% of Hun's Honey's profits go to employing women survivors of trauma. 100%. So, folks, your purchase has a purpose. Mm. It paves the way for women to rebuild their lives in concrete ways. So here's what you can do. You go check it all out. They've got great gifts and everything else there at hunshoney.com. That's H-O-N-S-H-O-N-E-Y.com. And use the coupon code BEINGKNOWN. That's B-E-I-N-G-K-N-O-W-N for 20% off your order. This is a great gift that has generational impact. That's Hun's Honey. You had a a drop-the-mic moment, I thought, in the book when you said, judging others has its origin in self-judgment. I read that. I was like, yeah. And when you say shame people, shame people. Um, I'll tell a a story quickly. Yeah. Yeah, Um, Yeah, that's good. I was uh, eighth grade. I think in the eighth, seventh, eighth grade, eighth grade. And uh, so I was, I know you were a September kid, September 12th. Yeah. Well, you might remember that <laughs> I am a September, you know, you wouldn't remember, but that's okay. Um, I am a September Look, kid. I know that, I know that on the day that I forgot your birthday, you got a great haircut. <laughs> I know that. I know that you had a great haircut, which is helping you maintain your status as the most beautiful man yes, in the world. Yes, thank so you for that. I Let just, me tell my story. So, <laughs> so I was a September kid, so my parents had a choice when I was going into first grade to either send me or not. Yeah. And my cousins were all gone, my friends in the neighborhood were all going, and they were probably, my parents were probably, <laughs> time to get this kid out of the house anyway. So, and you're so smart. Yeah. Yeah. So... Like, so they, they don't want you languishing with right, the right. kids so, coming behind you. So all this to say, I was a little, little guy. Yeah, um, I get it. Uh, I was a year younger than pretty much everybody else in the class. And, Dude, and, I didn't and, know this. And I was a late Gosh. bloomer. Like, I, was a, I didn't Ugh. grow until, like, my senior year in high school. 
Like if you were to line the kids up in the class from tallest to shortest, I would have been way down here on the short side. And so anyway, so I was, uh, I used to play basketball in a league that was outside of the school. It was not, it was, and like so I, league. yeah, so I really wanted to try play on the, on the school team in eighth grade. Yeah. So I go and I play, I get on the team. They had tryouts, but I don't, I think everybody made it. It wasn't a, you know, so, so I'm on a team, but I'm not playing much. I'm sitting on the bench and there was a, the, the coach's son was on the team, and he was a super athlete. Hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, he was, a, he was playing a year up, but he was incredible. Hmm. And hmm. we won every game of the season, undefeated. And the, then we go into a tournament, and we're playing the final game of the tournament. Hmm. And this kid goes up for a layup, misses the layup, and his dad calls timeout, calls him over to the bench, and slaps him across the face in front of a full crowd of uh, parents and, you know, spectators for the, you know, the big oh final gosh. game. I mean, in the hush that came over the place. I mean, this was 1978 or 9 or something, so times were a little differently. There was nothing, you know. So um, oh my we lose the game. Okay, we lose the game. But they had a trophy ceremony, and the trophy that we got for being a, the undefeated team for the whole season was huge. And we kind of got a picture by the trophy, and I like went— this, like, the, like, the, like, the, like the season league champion. Kind exactly, of. exactly. Yeah. So I, yeah, go, yeah, yeah. I go over to touch the trophy, to see the trophy, and this kid slaps my hand, and he says— you had nothing to do with this. You rode the bench the whole season. You didn't win this. Oh, my gosh. And in front of the whole, you know, in front of all my peers, in front of all, you know, the, the, the team and the team that we just lost to, you talk about shame people, shaming people, right? Yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah. In that that whole sense of judgment, I, I like I, I get, I'm just it's just like it's kind of, it's getting close to making me kind of like sick in my stomach mm. just to hear this story. And were your parents there? Not in remember? that. I don't. I think my 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 mom will be hi, Rom. My mom will be watching this. I'm sure, and she'll probably hear that story for the first time. Wow. So. I'm close to just being like sick in my stomach hearing this. Like, this is just awful. And, you know, season four, we talked about trauma. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that trauma is so overwhelmingly powerful has everything to do with this very issue, the way it wields shame in the way that it does. And I'm just, I'm just really sorry. And I'm also aware that that's, that whole notion of judgment is, I mean, like it's, it's a poignant story of the immediate trickle down effect. Mm. You know, how in the world is that in what world is that ever even possible that a father would do that to his son? And at the same time, you know, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm the father of a star athlete, I would want that athlete. You know, I, I was just, uh, we talked in the last episode about hockey. Yeah. And I was reading an article about Wayne Gretzky. The great one. Uh, 
last night and and was told that and it was it was said that before before Gretzky it was understood that hockey was largely about stopping one player on the opposing team each team would have their one or two players that were the stars and those one or two players were the people who were like they were going to get the puck they were going to score they were going to make like that's how they that and so teams were arranged their defenses around stopping Gordy Howe right and Gretzky came on the scene and through his life growing up and his conversations with his dad and his dad, who I think that he had a pretty good relationship with in his coaching, what Gretzky brought to the table that had never been done before was the way Gretzky got all of his other teammates involved. And Gretzky would say that the issue is not about what you do with the puck. The issue is how do you get to the open space on the ice where nobody is because that's how you, and, and so getting his teammates to open spaces and people like, and Gretzky was, you know, perennially, like it was, it was, it, it was, you know, understood that like, how's this guy do this? Because he's, he's not very big. He only weighed 160, 165 pounds when most hockey players are huge and they're fat. He was fast and agile, but he got his teammates involved. And then it would later be said that other teams were so like, we don't know what to do with the Oilers because we're not just facing one guy. We're facing five guys on the ice because Gretzky's pulling everybody in. Yeah. If you're the great one, what makes you really good is the way you bring everybody else along. And that would have been the role of that coach's son, to bring everybody along, right? Because what he doesn't know is that if you're not in practice, he doesn't have anybody to practice against, which helps him be better at what he's doing. Right, but you can't give what you don't have, what you haven't been given. No, right, right. No, you I know, mean, yeah. It, it's, it's, that's a generational thing, but, you know, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I'm just mad. <laughs> I appreciate that. That actually makes me feel really pretty pissed. good. I'm makes just really me mad. Feel pretty good. Yeah. I don't want to just find the kid. I want to. I want to find the kid and yell at him. I want to find the dad and beat the living crap out of him. That's yeah. you know. That's just not not very. Again. Yeah. You know the whole Quaker Presbyterian thing. I got to yes. figure out what you know yeah. which which I want to be. Yeah. So this whole notion of judgment is one of the big characteristics. Another characteristic of this is this notion of how, uh, you know, when shame happens to me, I, I want to hide. I want to turn away yeah. from you, turn away from myself. You know, there was a story that we write about in the book about Gloria, and she had had an abortion when she was a teenager, and she never told this to her husband. She got married, married for 30 years. And eventually her anxiety and her grief and her long-term undercurrent of depression kind of caught up with her and she had never told anyone, not least her husband. And you might think like, how is that possible? She's got this other life that seems to be flourishing, but she's this depressed all the time. And this is, I mean, we, we can feel so bad about certain things that we never tell. We have, you know, come in, see all of my house, but there's this one room that I don't, and, and, and if I practice it enough of not, letting anybody go there, not telling anybody about it. After a while, I even forget that the room is even there. And so that's the other thing that we get with shame. I want to hide. I'm not going to necessarily, when I feel it, I'm not going to turn toward you because it's, it's too overwhelming, too unpleasant for that to happen. This notion that it's also another, a third feature of it. We talked earlier about it kind of doubles back and doubles down. It is what we call self-perpetuating. 
I feel ashamed and then I feel ashamed for feeling ashamed. Nancy and Mark were a couple that after their marriage, you know, she revealed to him that she had this challenge with the disorder of, of, of eating, like eating was, was, was challenging. And immediately he wanted her to get help and she just wouldn't do it. And every time that it would, something would happen and he would bring it to her attention, she would feel that much worse and she would we just waited forever and ever and ever to do something about it because every time it happened, I would feel bad that it happened and I'd feel bad that I'm not doing something about it and the vice grip of shame just continued. Yeah. And then there's this notion of, we like to call, you know, divide and conquer what shame does to us. And in a future episode, we're going to talk about what shame actually does in the mind. And one of the first things that we know is that I become disconnected even within my mental functions. Different mental functions become disconnected from one another. This notion that there's a part of me, within me, that is ashamed, and so I cut it off from other parts of me. But in so doing, I often cut myself off from other parts of me. Nancy and Mark, Nancy and Mark were siblings. And as we like to say in the business, that sibling rivalry actually isn't about siblings, it's about parents. And this was a case in Nancy and Mark's situation. This sense that they would come together at these family reunions and Nancy's parents, Mark's parents, were always highlighting Mark and all the things, all the wonderful things that Mark was doing. And his sister was just kind of like, you know, a period at the end of the sentence. And at one reunion, and this is, you know, for years this goes on. And for at one reunion, Mark's talking with his parents, with his, you know, with his parents about, you know, what his son wanted to do with baseball. And so Nancy, in, in her in interest to like step into the conversation, she and wanted to highlight her daughter's interest in starting to play lacrosse. And she mentions this and her mom doesn't even respond, but merely comes back to Mark in the room and asks Mark what position his son likes to play. Now, our listeners are, are listening and you're thinking like that, you know, Kurt, you got to be making this like, no, you can't make this stuff up. Like who, like who does this? We do this. This is what we do. And the next thing you know, like there's a plate that is being smashed and food flung and a wine glass broken because Nancy's had enough. And she gathers up her husband and her kids and they leave. She doesn't clean up her mess. She's just done. And not surprisingly, a few days later, she gets a call from her mother, and her mother wants to know what she's going to do to fix this problem. What Nancy's going to do to fix the problem. Yeah, what she's yeah. going to do to fix the problem. You need to apologize to your brother. You need to like you like you left the place in a mess. You like, like really, like this this really happened. Human beings really really did this. This sense though that when we get. When we find ourselves this isolated, we have parts of us that are this isolated, this room in my house that I'm not going to look at. At some point, the toxic nature of what is being housed in that room is going to uh, be unwilling to any further or any longer remain confined. Right. And when it shows up, it shows up like a hurricane. And that's what happened to her. And so we, we get, and, and then it, it leads to these next acts of violence, right? It's, it's 
you know, food and plates and glasses and so forth and so on, which leads to the next act of violence. When, when her mother calls her and says, like, like, what are you going to do to clean up this mess? And so we find that these features of judgment and hiding and then the isolation and the disconnection that takes place within myself and between myself and others is something that even in our responses, we tend to reinforce all these things. And we come to find out that if we're going to do something about it, we have to recognize that it's going to require a lot of counterintuitive work on our part. I tell people, my, my, my notion of shame is that it's kind of like emotional nausea. Like, who wants to be nauseous? Who, like, who, like, for whatever reason. Like, no, 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 I don't want to ever, ever, ever want that. Like, nobody likes to throw up, but the thing that we like about throwing up is it like, oh, it lets me know that, like, my nausea is going to go away. Right. But I don't really get that. So I, 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 don't, I don't really want that. And so this notion of moving towards shame, which is what we really want to do, rather than moving away from it is important. We're going to be doing more and more of that. Jordan was a guy that grew up in a school that, uh, locally grew up in a school that, you know, eventually as after he, you know, went through, matriculated through all the elementary, middle and high school, he went off to college, but this school became like a blue ribbon school in our area. And this is, you know, a lot of AP courses, lots of, right. And Jordan actually goes off, gets his graduate degree, comes back and he's teaching in the same school where he graduated from. And he's noticing all these kids who are having all this pressure, all this worry about like, am I not just going to go to college of my choice? Am I going to go to Yale? right? This is the thing. Are we going to, we're going to have this right thing. And so, um, he decides he's going to start to meet with kids. Like he's an English teacher and he's going to meet with kids once a month. He's going to this coffee shop. He's going to like, come in and no, we're just going to talk about how you're doing. And in the course of all this, he starts to like, they, he says like, well, what's it like to be in school? And they start to talk about how much pressure they feel. And of course, these are kids who are all bright, articulate, and nobody wants to admit that they're feeling the kind of pressure that they feel. But what's so interesting is that as Jordan facilitates these conversations, they start to name their shame about even being ashamed that they're feeling this. They're like they're ashamed that they're even feeling this pressure. They're like, I feel the pressure, but I shouldn't feel the pressure. Then I feel bad that I'm even all the things, right? That's just doubling back and doubling down. But as Jordan invites them to actually name it, they start to come every month. They, they come. They say, like, well, I, I just look forward to talking about this stuff. And they start to talk about how the coming to this coffee shop once a month is actually reducing their overall sense of distress and shame because they're not by themselves. They're not alone with this. And in this way, news eventually, you know, they talk to their, you know, they, they talk to their parents, their parents talk to their teachers, teachers talk to the school people. And before you know it, Jordan's called in by the, by the principal, like, what, what, like what's, what's going on? Like, and he starts to talk to them and they start to like make changes. Because he's actually inviting these kids to do the very counterintuitive thing that we're going to be doing here in this season. We're going to be turning toward our shame. And Jordan knows, and those kids know, and we know that we're not going to resolve our shame, but we're going to change our relationship with it. And we want to say, this is what God has been doing from the beginning. In the very beginning, and we'll talk about this later, how God comes to Adam. Where are you? He's coming toward it. He's not running away from it. He doesn't say like, well, my, gosh, my, my creation project just went down the toilet. I'm just going to burn the whole thing to the ground not going back to find them, those idiots. He's not saying that. He's coming for them. And we would say that this all culminates in the gospel. This culminates in Good Friday. This culminates in Easter. This culminates in Pentecost. This culminates in what the Spirit is doing even now. 
And we want to say that even in the middle of hard things, uh, you know, we're recording this in late May and, you know, we've had real tragedy that's taken place in the last three weeks in our country, in Buffalo, Mm -hmm. the shooting, and now in Uvalde in Texas, 21 people killed. We have our politics, we have our ethnic conflicts, we have our church fractures, all, all acts of violence that all begin in this thing with with this thing that we call shame. And if I'm not taking care of it in my kitchen, if I'm not first taking care of it in my imagination, it's going to run my incarnational expression of it. And we really want to become more like Jesus. We want to become like the incarnate one. And in so doing, we're going to do with shame the very thing that he did, which was turn toward it, go after it, to invite it into the room so that it can be healed and recommissioned so that beauty and goodness can emerge. Yeah. It's um, it's it's so interesting that the 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 very thing this this shame, the thing that it wants you to not do is <laughs> is turn towards it and share it, expose it, because what it's it's like it's it's cause its effect on you is the thing is is the thing that's stopping you from from doing that. Like how how it affects me is that I want to hide. I want right. to, you know, and yet you've got to turn and open up. It's just talk about, yeah, counterintuitive is right. Yeah. 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 Well, this has been really great, Kurt. I'm looking forward to continuing to learn more about this, and I'm sort of looking forward to <laughs> learning more about myself, <laughs> sort of. Um, yeah. But thank you for today. This was great. And those yeah. of you who are watching on YouTube, Amy's going to be joining us now. So stick around. Before we go, that. though. Oh, yes. We, we have go, an application. Talk, we have an application. And, you know, we've talked about some things today that can begin, the, help us begin the process of moving shame from just an imagined thing into our being aware of how are we uh, making it incarnate in our own lives. And so the application that I would invite us to consider doing today is, first of all, doing some journaling work, doing some reflection and some writing work around what are some of the ways in which I use words, kind of like you were saying, I'm such an idiot, I'm not enough, this, that, oh, I should have, I shouldn't have. What are some ways that we use words to both express our shame, but also to reinforce it? So take some time and do some reflection and start to pay attention to that, because we're going to get to why that's important just to begin to pay attention to that. I'd also want to invite you to start to pay attention to when you sense it, Where and how in your physical body do you sense shame coming over you? Beginning to just simply pay attention to it. And then we've named some characteristics of shame, some general characteristics. That it is there's a characteristic of judgment or condemnation, the characteristic of how we hide both from ourselves and from others. The characteristic of how shame gets caught in this loop and we just reinforce it. I feel ashamed, and then I feel ashamed that I'm ashamed. And then we have this sense of how shame causes me to be cut off from, disconnected, and I isolate from myself and from others. Those four characteristics, judgment, hiding, self-perpetuation, and disconnection slash isolation, we'd love to have you do some reflection and some writing work, making some lists about what are some ways in which I do all of those things. Again, this is in preparation for what we can eventually begin to do in terms of how we respond to those moments that we'll be talking more and more about 
in the episodes to come. Great. Thank you for that, Kurt. Thank you. Be paying attention to those words that I'm saying this week and look forward to working on that application. Thanks. Okay. Now, those of you who are watching on YouTube, Amy's going to be joining us. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, please write a review, subscribe, rate us. It all helps. Mm. Love you, Kurt. Love you, man. See you next week. Right on. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.